Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask you to open your word to us. We ask you to help me to rightly divide your word. We pray, Father, that you would help each one of us to be good hearers. Father, we pray that the the message of your word uh, would be driven deep into our hearts. And Father, that we would have joy and that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, Tim read one of the classic passages in the scripture on salvation, Romans chapter 10. Now, of course, this is hardly the only great passage on salvation that we find in the epistles. Uh, consider, for example, Galatians chapter 3, or Ephesians chapter 2, or Titus chapter 3. And consider also that Romans 10 is arguably just a small part of an extended treatment of salvation that runs from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11. What makes these passages so important and therefore so familiar to us is the fact that they they treat the subject of salvation so plainly and so directly. I'm not saying these passages can't be challenging or that they don't require careful study. What I'm saying though is just this, that When Paul writes about salvation, you know he's writing about salvation. He tells you what it is. He tells you how it comes about. He tells you why it's necessary. You can't miss it. This summer I was reading through the Gospels, and I found something curious. The Gospels, and by that I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't seem to have very much to say about salvation. Now, some of you are saying, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 whoa. What about John chapter 3, right? For God so loved the world and gave his only begotten Son. Yes, yes, of course. That's a notable exception. And my point is just that. It's an exception. Shouldn't the four Gospels have more to say about the Gospel? And what prompted this thinking was an observation as I was reading through them that the Gospels seemed highly moralistic. By that I mean they're, they, they tell us what to do, they tell us what not to do, right? They tell us how to live, they, they set out for us the standard of excellence that we're supposed to adhere to. Consider, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. I think if you asked a lot of people what their favorite passage of the Bible is, a lot of them would say, oh, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And to that I respond, you must be crazy and you must never have read it. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. The, the, the famous, the, probably the most famous version of the, uh, or, or iteration of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. Okay. We'll go to verse 22. You have heard that the ancients were told you, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. We can approach this passage and say, well, like I think a lot of Christ's hearers, yeah, haven't committed, haven't committed murder. Not that I've been caught anyway. Uh, no, I haven't committed murder. Right? And, you know, I better not be angry, so, okay, check. I'll, I'll try to keep my temper. But Christ says we're not supposed to call people fools. 
Now, some of us can say, well, gee, I'm not in the habit of calling people fools. But I do call them morons from time to time. And I do call them boneheads. I call them idiots. I call them jerks. And I'll sometimes call them trolls. I think that's a, a young person's thing. You troll, right? Am I, am I right? All right I mean, if you're above 40, you can't call people trolls. But below that, you can, right? Probably not below, probably not above 30. But you know what I'm saying? We call people these things, right? And yikes, Christ says that the penalty is hell, right? And so we, we say to ourselves, I, I better shape up here. I better not say these things. But the problem is I've already said them. Right, I've already been angry with my brother. I've already called people morons, boneheads, idiots, so on and so forth. So let's look at verses uh, 20, skip down to verse 27, read verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his, in his heart. So you say, all right, well, I guess I can't look at porn. Well, congratulations, don't look at porn. But what about dancing with the stars? I mean, how many of us were watching that program? Not that I watch it very often, but I mean, how many guys, let's, let's confess here in our heart of hearts, you don't have to speak out loud. How many of us are thinking, wow, look at those legs. Gee, that slit goes all the way up to here. Look at the way she moves her hips. Oops, you just got caught lusting. All right? And Christ says that's adultery. And in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery is death. And, and some of you women are probably feeling kind of smug. You know, that's a guy problem, right? I've heard that women are just as bad. I, I can't verify that, but I don't know how I would, but that's what I've heard. Okay, so note to self, don't watch Dancing with the Stars, right? But is it really possible to turn on the television without possibly subjecting oneself to temptation? Let's look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So you say to yourself, all right, I guess I'm not allowed to punch someone if I get punched. Did Christ really mean that? And you, But you can say to yourself, well, you know, I haven't been punched since like third grade, and I'm not likely to be punched anytime soon, so I guess I'm okay, right? But then someone might also say to himself or herself, you know, yesterday someone insulted me and I got mad and boy did I give that person a piece of my mind. I told that person off, good. And you should have seen the look on her face. Oops. I didn't turn the other cheek, did I? All right. Note to self, don't tell people off when they make you mad, right? So we can, we can look and say, well, all right, try to do better here. Try to do better. Let's flip over to chapter 7. Look at verses 1 and 2. I think for some people, this is their favorite verse of the Bible. You know, the, the people who, um, you know, don't feel quite holy enough to, to, to say their favorite passage is the Sermon on the Mount, although this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? But this one, this is the one they really drill down to and say, this is my favorite passage. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Okay, so you can imagine a person saying, and I'm sure this happens all the time on Facebook, if you don't believe me, just check out the comment section and various posts that people make, right? Someone will say, you know, these people over here, they call themselves Christians, but they act like this verse isn't even in the Bible. I mean, yeah, 
I might be living with my girlfriend and my boyfriend, and yeah, I may still be married, and yeah, I may cook meth, but judge not that you be not judged. And, you know, I don't, I don't know about these people who condemn me for that. Are they really Christians? I mean, for heaven's sake, it says don't judge. Oops, what, am I, what have I just done? I've judged people for judging me. Note to self, don't quote this verse. Right? When you start throwing it around, you're guilty of it. That's a problem. The Gospels also seem to demand an impossible level of commitment to God. Let's look at Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we'll begin in verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36, and we'll read down to 39. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. How many of you really in your heart of hearts wish you were someplace else right now? How many of you during Sunday school were thinking about football? Just a little bit, right? Or lunch? Or stranger things? And by that I mean the TV show, not weird things. Um, Weirder things than you heard in Sunday school class. Um, How many of you were thinking about hunting during uh, Sunday school, right? And, and how many of you actually skipped Sunday school because 9 o'clock is just too early to get up in the morning? I mean, after all, this is your only day a week to sleep in, right? Guys, this is the greatest commandment. We're to love God with our very being, everything, every part of us. And how many of us have succeeded in honoring that commandment for 15 minutes this morning? Um, and believe me, with respect to being, you know, not, not coming to Sunday school, I'm not picking on you. My, ten- my attendance is not perfect, and I'm often late, in fact, usually late. Uh, but my point is this. We're to love God with all our heart, souls, minds, and strength. And how do we live? How, how do we reflect that, right? And what about the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us go through life with the attitude of justice, or excuse me, mercy for me, and justice for thee. So I'm entitled to have a bad day. If I bite your head off, it's because I'm having a bad day, right? I didn't get enough sleep last night, or, or man, things just aren't going well at home, or I've got a cold, so give me a break. How many of us are willing to extend a break to anybody else, right? Somebody else needs a break, and we didn't even think about that. It's, oh, that person's a jerk of troll. Oops, there we go again, right? Let's look at Luke chapter 9. Verse 24, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. Now, how many of you, can, you don't have to raise your hands, but here, just be honest with yourself. How many of you can honestly say that this verse is your favorite verse? Just love this verse, right? It just speaks to you. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. If you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. How many times has someone recently told you that? How many times have you been watching Dr. Phil, and Dr. Phil says, you know what? If you want to deal with this problem, here's what you do. Deny yourself. 
Right? How many times have you heard a commercial where they say, look, you know, the answer to all life's problems is to deny yourself. No, it's have it your way, right? You deserve a break today. Right? How many of you remember that, that commercial? Um, the, the message of our culture is the exact opposite of the message that Christ sends us. Oh, and by the way, when he says take up your cross, he's not talking about those little things we put on our, our necklaces or our earrings or those shirts we put on and have a cross on it or a tattoo. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the instrument of your own execution. Imagine walking around with the syringes for your own lethal injection. Okay, that's what Christ is talking about, except we inject people lethally because we're trying to be kind. There was nothing kind about death on the cross. Christ is saying walk around with the instrument of your violent, extraordinarily painful death. That's how you're supposed to live life. And why am I, why am I saying all this? It's because I think we often misunderstand these passages. We think that Christ is telling us to be good. He's not. He's telling us that we are not good. He is telling us that we can't be good. And he's telling us that the only way we can have life is to give up our very lives in every single thing we have. And frankly, that's a trade that we can't make. Let's look at the rich young ruler. I think he illustrates this perfectly. This is found in Mark 10. Mark 10. We'll begin in verse 17 and go on down to 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible. But not with God, for, with, for all things are possible with God. Now notice Christ's first response here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now Christ was and is good. And Christ was and is God. But this guy didn't know that. Right? And more importantly, he didn't know that he, the rich young ruler, wasn't good. So Christ calls his bluff. He says, look, all right, here, here's what you do. You sell everything you have, you give it to the poor, and you come follow me. 
And what did the rich young ruler do? He went away sad. He had kept the Ten Commandments, he thought anyway, but he hadn't kept and he couldn't keep the greatest commandment, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or even the next greatest commandment, to love his neighbor as himself. And the truth is, he couldn't keep these commands. He could not do it. And Christ said a camel is more likely to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man is to enter God's kingdom. So notice what the the apostles, the disciples say. They ask the right question. They say, then who can be saved? And just just picture Christ now. As I picture him, I can almost picture a twinkle in his eyes. he says this. He says, with people it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now this brings to mind the next prominent aspect of the Gospels. And that's the fact that Christ went around healing people. I want to suggest to you that Christ didn't trouble himself with the common cold. I mean, how many people wish Christ would have solved once and for all the common cold? Right? But if, if you look at what Christ did in the Gospels, he doesn't bother with the common cold. There's perhaps one exception. And that's uh, an exception he made for Peter's mother-in-law. She had a fever and some other problem, and he healed her, and she was better, right? But that's not generally what Christ did. Christ took on the impossible. If you don't believe me, let's take a brief stroll through the first part of Mark. Let's start in chapter 1. And let's begin in verse 23. We'll read down to verse 26. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an, un- with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out in a loud voice and came out of him. All right, so here we have a person who is possessed by a demon. Presumably not by choice. You don't evict demons. You don't say, All right, this has been fun, but get out of here. They don't leave. And they treat you like a, like a three-year-old who's just discovered that you can break the plates. Right? Imagine if your children, very small children, right, realized they could get away with destroying the crockery. Right? That's how demons treat people they possess. And Christ says, be quiet and come out of it. Boom, problem solved. Let's skip down to verse 40. Read to verse 44. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. That's as far as we go with that. So here's a person who has leprosy. Back in the day to be uh, diagnosed with leprosy meant that you were going to spend the rest of your life alone, or at least only in the company of other lepers. Right? Leprosy was a terrible disease. Right? He had no hope, but he came to Christ. He believed Christ could heal him. Christ touched him and said, I'm willing to be healed, or be cleansed, rather. Let's skip over to chapter 3. Let's look at verse, verses 1 through 5. I love this passage. He entered again into a synagogue with a man, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And looking around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I'm not sure what it meant here by his, by his hand being withered. But I've got a hunch that that's the kind of condition that we couldn't even deal with today. You couldn't treat with antibiotics. If you want to fix a withered hand, you might have to take the hand of some dead dead person, right? Chop off someone's hand and put the put the other one on, right? I'm not even sure sure uh, surgeons can do that kind of thing. A withered hand. It's an impossible circumstance. And imagine living in a day where, most people anyway, earn their living through manual labor. How do you compete in the job market in those days with a withered hand? If one of your hands is no good. What does Christ say? Impossible circumstance. Christ tells him to stand up. He says, stretch out your hand and heal. Just like that. Let's move over to chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and um, had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Imagine that. Right? How many of you have been through chemotherapy? Doesn't it kind of feel a little like this? You know, you've suffered much at the hands of physicians and you've spent all you have. Uh, you feel like you've grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. In this case, Christ doesn't even say anything. We have a woman who has a problem that she's been trying to solve for 12 years and it's only gotten worse and it's cost her everything she owned. She says, if I can just touch it's clothes. She does it and she's healed. Let's skip down to verse, verses 35 to 42. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and, 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 he en, and, excuse me, and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, I want you to know here, it's very interesting what Christ says, because she was dead. Right? Um, but in, in, the, in the New Testament, there, there, it's, it's very clear that, when, that death for the believer is likened to sleep. So, but I, but I do think that Christ is perhaps protecting this child's privacy as well by saying she's asleep. Right? They begin laughing at him by putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her two words here, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. How do, how do you cope with a dead child? Right? That is a hopeless circumstance. That's a hopeless circumstance. Christ comes in, he says two words, and she's healed. She's alive. She's running around. Right? 
I want you to notice two things about these healings. First, the hopelessness of each person's circumstance. There was no hope until Jesus showed up. And second, I want you to notice the ease, the utter effortlessness with which Christ solved their problem. And I want to suggest further that when Christ healed these people, he wasn't merely doing a good deed. And he wasn't merely revealing his power as God's son. He was revealing his capacity to deal with our deepest and most irresolvable problem, and that is the problem of our sin. None of us is good, and even if we could become good, that still wouldn't deal with all the sins we've committed in our past. And the most important commandment of all, as I've said before, to love God with all our being is the commandment that we are most likely to violate. And honestly, if I can be perfectly transparent, I don't even bother to attempt to keep this commandment because I know it's hopeful. I'm not even sure I can manage a moment's obedience. I mean, think about that in life. How many times could you really say, God, I'm loving you with all my heart and soul, strength and mind, right? I mean, it's kind of easy when you're singing a song, right? Because you stand still, you're inspired by the words, you're inspired by the music, right? But after that moment has passed, how many times in life can we all say, God, I'm just, I am serving you with everything in me, right? If you can say that, praise God, right? But chances are it's not how you live every day or every moment of every day. And friends, this is, this is the greatest commandment. This is the one that, that's the beginning of everything else. And of course, we didn't even need to talk about the second greatest commandment, about loving our neighbors as ourselves. If you think you love your neighbor as yourself, ask your spouse, and your spouse will tell you you do not. Okay? Uh, your spouse will tell you you are a liar or, or spectacularly unaware of how you really are. The truth is we need forgiveness. And that is what Christ came to give and give freely. We see this in Mark chapter 2. Let's look at that now. Mark chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. When he had come back to, to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was in, at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning uh, that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. These men came to Jesus with a hopeless problem. Two, actually. First is paralysis, right? The second is sin. 
Christ said, it says that he saw their faith in verse 5 and he solved both problems. He used his ability to solve one hopeless problem, paralysis, to prove his ability to solve another hopeless problem, sin. Friends, the Gospels are full of the Gospel. The Gospel is preached to us every time Christ shows us how unobtainable, how utterly unobtainable righteousness is for us. And it is preached to us every time Christ heals someone afflicted with a hopeless disease. That disease is a picture of our sin, and it's a picture of Christ's capacity to forgive. Now, later, of course, in the Epistle of Romans, Paul will write that, or writes that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, that's Romans 6.23. The epistles tell us about salvation. The gospels show us salvation. Friends, we all have a disease called sin. We can't fix it, and it will kill us. Not just our bodies, but our souls. You can have forgiveness the same way the leper got forgiveness, got healing, right? He asked for it. Jesus stands ready to forgive. He paid for your sins on the cross. Why not ask him to forgive you right now? Let's pray. Father, I come to you, um, and I hope that I have uh, accurately presented your word. I hope I've been faithful. Uh, I pray that your spirit would speak to every heart uh, in this auditorium, Lord. I believe there are many people who know you here, Father, and each of us needs to be reminded that we are sinners and that we depend uh, for our salvation on your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Father, I believe there may be someone here, maybe several, who have misunderstood the Gospels, they've misunderstood Christianity, uh, they may think that Christianity is about being good or going to church on Sunday. And Father, you know that's baloney, it's utter baloney. Father, Christianity is about the forgiveness that Christ offers and the new life, the transformation that can take place through your spirit, through faith. It's, it's your work, and Father, I pray that uh, you would speak to those who don't know you right now. Father, that you would lead them to call out to you for, for forgiveness. I know that the angels would rejoice if that takes place, and certainly we would rejoice if, if we hear that as well. So, Father, I ask you to speak now, and we ask you to do your work of salvation. We praise you mightily that... Uh, as, the, as it says in the Old Testament, that you forgive our sins for your sake because you want to relate to us. Father, that is still kind. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.